Well, hello, everyone. This is John Byrne with Poets and Quants. Welcome to Business Casual, our weekly podcast with my co-hosts, Maria Wickvilla and Caroline Diorti Edwards. You know them well by now. Caroline, of course, is a former admissions head at NCOT and the co-founder of Fortuna Admissions. And Maria is the founder of Applicant Lab. And I just have to tell you that in the past day or two, Caroline broke a big story for us. We put it up on the site in in less than 24 hours. It achieved over 30,000 page views, which is pretty darn good. And I will tell you why. It's because Caroline found out that NCOD is looking at GMAT scores a bit differently these days. And in fact, has opened the door to receive and admit students with GMAT scores that are lower than they had been in the past. Caroline, why don't you tell us how you uh, followed this and got onto it? Yeah, so so I, I know Virginie Fuja very well, who's head of admissions at INSEAD. So we worked together for many years. Um, Virginie, that's absolutely wonderful. And um, you know, we keep in touch regularly. So I was chatting with her recently. A client had mentioned that she had said on a recent admissions webinar when they were discussing a particular case that someone with quite a low quantitative percentile on the GMAT actually didn't need to reapply. So I was curious about that because traditionally, INSEAD has been incredibly strict on the GMAT. So for many years, the policy has been candidates need to get 70 or 75th percentile on the quant and the verbal. And they really look at that breakdown much more than total score in order to be credible candidate. And that has been the case for many, many years. And, you know, it was sometimes frustrating for me when I was at INSEAD, when we would turn away, you know, potentially fantastic students who hadn't quite made that score. Now, sometimes in the past, for sure, there were there were exceptions to that rule, but it was very much the exception rather than the rule that, that people um, below that level would get in. So now, finally, the admissions committee has agreed that candidates who have not achieved that, that threshold, if they have otherwise you know, strong academic credentials, and it's important to emphasize this, if they have you know, strong undergrad and you know, clear evidence that they have what it takes academically to succeed on the program, then the school will, will consider them much more seriously than they might have in the past. And now it's important to emphasize that you, know, you still have to have those strong academic credentials and be able to demonstrate that you'll do well on the program. And that's partly because it's a one-year program. So the pace is fast, right? So in, and that's why INSEAD has traditionally been much less flexible on the GMAT than some other schools. Even, you know, I've had clients get into schools like Harvard and Stanford who would not get into INSEAD because of their GMATs, right? And INSEAD, because it's that one-year format, the pace is fast. You know, I sometimes joke, it's like drinking from a fire hose. You have have exams every eight weeks. There's no time to sort of gradually get up to speed and brush up your quant skills when you start the program. You need to hit the ground running academically. So they do need that reassurance. And they'll look at not just your undergrad, not just your GMAT, but they will also look at your work experience, right? Some people are using 
you know, a, a lot of advanced quantitative and analytical skills in their work. And they will, um, you know, give credence to that as well as demonstration of quantitative ability. Yeah. Now, I often wondered if one of the reasons why NCAD was a bit tougher on the GMAT was because professors are on the admissions committee and have a role in admitting uh, students. And I wondered if, you know, professors may think that uh, the GMAT is, you know, more important than it probably is. What do you think of that? Well, that's for sure. So, so at INSEAD, the admissions committee is composed um, of half faculty and half alumni, right? And so, you know, I think it works very well because they bring different perspectives to the decision-making process. So, so the alumni are, you know, whilst all of these people understand the, the, the whole picture, right, the holistic process and the different criteria that INSEAD are looking at, the self-interest of the alumni is that, you know, they want to recruit students who are going to be incredible professionals, super successful, you know, wonderful ambassadors for the school and great people to have in their future network. And so are more interested sometimes in the professional track record than the academic side. Whereas the faculty want to have the smartest students in their classroom, right? So, so they may give a bit more weight to the academic profile. And overall, it works out very well. They balance each other out. It makes for some, you know, very good discussions, right? Where people are challenging each other and it's not this sort of group think where they immediately sort of jump to a conclusion about a candidate. But there is genuine discussion and debate and it sometimes gets pretty heated. So, you know, I, I think that's very healthy to have that balance, but it, it does mean that sometimes, you know, the faculty can be very um, persuasive and, and sometimes can, you know, really lobby against submitting a candidate where they don't feel confident about the academic credentials. So, you know, clearly this has been a policy that they have thought through very carefully and, you know, they will have agreed this with the admissions committee, right? It's not just Virginie who's decided this and imposed this on the admissions committee. Right. Yeah. Um, it would have been, you know, very much a, a sort of strategic decision that's been taken after a great deal of thought and, and, and discussion by the committee. Yeah, one consequence of this, which is a positive consequence, is that people who otherwise might have been discouraged from applying might more readily apply as a result of this policy change. This has been, the, you know, a difficulty for Stanford for years, the school with the highest, you know, average GMAT score for its incoming cohorts always worries that it's losing a lot of fantastic candidates merely because that number is so high and it turns a lot of people off. You think you don't even have a chance to get in. Hmm. Marie, I'm sure you've seen this with some of your clients over the years where they look at those scores and they just say, hey, I can never, I can't get that. I, I can't get that score. So I don't have a chance, even though you know, when a school publishes a median, obviously half of all the people who get admitted on, uh, are under the median. And roughly the same is true for an average. But people do talk themselves out of applying, right? Yeah, absolutely. And it really is a shame because, as Caroline said, it is a holistic process. You know, if if one of the things that the school is looking for is ultimately to identify people who will in the future be very successful alumni who will be on the cover of whatever magazine and will make the school proud. Um, yeah, sometimes those people, oftentimes those people may not necessarily be the best standardized test takers. And so I do think that sometimes, you know, I, I will say that I have worked with people who did not do very well as well on the GMAT and I urged them to take the GRE 
And then they were accepted with the GRE. So going back to last week's discussion, I do think that there's a little more forgiveness and wiggle room if somebody submits with the GRE score. But yeah, what's what's remarkable about what Caroline has uncovered is that, I mean, every school or most other schools have always said, oh, it's, you know, just it it's a range, just submit. It doesn't matter if you think you're a strong candidate. But INSEAD was rare in that it actually officially published. Like if you don't have at least 70, 75 percent, whatever, like, psh, like, yeah, you can apply. That is really unusual. Yeah, they were pretty overt about it. And so I wonder if maybe they started letting in a couple of people where if if it is really half professors and half alumni, there may have been some people where the alumni were banging on the table and saying, no, we have to let this person in. And then maybe they got in and they did perfectly well in the, in the classroom. And maybe that got the the professors to loosen a little bit. I, I did have a candidate once from, from Africa who had a mid 600s GMAT who did get into INSEAD. But again, this was a case of, a, of a, someone whose international experience was out of this world. Like just, it was one of those things where I'm, I'm glad that they had a letter of recommendation because I would almost think it it was embellished or exaggerated, but no, it wasn't like this person had like literally been, they, their company moved them to, to Brazil and they had to teach themselves Portuguese and negotiate with a village. No, they had to learn Portuguese and negotiate with a village because the village was, it was a multinational corporation that was going to do something in this village. And the villagers were rioting against this company and they had sent other Brazilian people who weren't able to quell the villagers. And she was able to go, learn Portuguese and negotiate with the villagers for a happy outcome. And I'm like, oh my God, you are amazing. And so in that, <laughs> that was and that's just one of the amazing things she did. So I was like, okay, like in this case, you know, your story is just so good. Like, let's just give it a shot with it, Zayad. Because wow, talk about international diversity of experiences. So yeah. anyway, um, but so yeah, so maybe I suspect someone like this amazing young woman got into INSEAD with a lower score, probably kicked some pretty serious butt in the classroom. And maybe those little data points start showing the professors that, yeah, you, you can be, you know, you don't have to be so stringent on the standardized test. Yeah. Right. And that, yeah. that's a good point. I think, Maria, that, you know, it's definitely going to be more the case for candidates who bring that sort of, you know, diverse perspective. So if you are, you know, a, if you have that type of profile that's somewhat unusual in the pool, then you're going to have a higher chance of of, uh, of doing well than you know if you have a very common profile, right? And you're you're up against very stiff competition from a lot of a lot of other candidates who have similar a similar profile to you, but you know they've aced the GMAT. So that's also something to keep in mind that the, the GMAT three, you know, I don't think the average GMAT at INSEAD is going to go down dramatically anytime soon, right? So they're still going to be admitting most of their students who've got very, have a very strong showing on the GMAT. So, you know, it, it's going to be more the candidates who bring that additional dimension of, of diversity and, you know, just have those fascinating profiles like you describe that, that are going to get more serious consideration with, with the lower GMAT. You know, I wonder if some of this is related to the school's goals to increase gender equality, uh, to increase increase diversity overall in its program. You know, uh, NCAD had uh, 33% mm-hmm. 
women in its MBA program in 2018 was 37% in 2021. It has a goal of reaching 40% in the 24-25 academic year. This is according to the dean. Mm. We also happened to have uh, an interview with him online. He stopped by the office in San Francisco, and uh, our managing editor interviewed him. And they're getting a lot of applications from Africa now. Uh, In fact, in the last cycle, he said applications from Africa doubled. And what we know, you know, and this is another ding on the test as far as I'm concerned, women tend to score less than men, even though their GPAs tend to be higher and they do better in the classroom than men. Africans uh, score uh, less. In fact, when you look at GMAT scores by country, you know, the African countries have among some of the lower GMAT scores. So when when you get applicants from Africa and you want greater representation from Africa, the standout candidates don't have uh, as high GMATs as they might in India, China, or some parts of uh, Europe. And and then the problem is that in Europe, there are very few female uh, applicants, according to the dean at INSEAD. So if you want to reach these diversity goals, you're going to have to be a little more flexible on a standardized test that is, after all, only one element of many in the assessment of a person's ability to come and do well in an MBA program. Do you think there's some of this in the background? Yes, absolutely. And that's what they're targeting. As Virginie said, you know, they would they're concerned that, you know, candidates who would be fabulous students at INSEAD might be self-selecting out of the pool and not applying because they haven't got that 70-75th percentile and they see that and they and they're put off and they go to other great schools. Um, And so, you know, this is specifically designed to broaden the pool and, and make it, you know, easier for for some candidates to apply who might otherwise have, have gone elsewhere. And it doesn't mean also, I mean, as she said, it doesn't mean that necessarily going to get in straight away, right? So oh, definitely not. So, I mean, they'll take them forward to interview if they like the profile. It may be that they will ask the candidate to retake the test, right? If there are still doubts about the academic ability of the candidate, then they may go back to them and, and they regularly do this, right? They they regularly ask candidates to retake the test if they love their profile, but they're just concerned that, you know, they haven't yet demonstrated that that that, that ability to cope with a very, very intensive and demanding program, they may ask them to retake the test. And last week, you know, we pretty thoroughly covered the decline in GMAT test taking volume, which is now at historic lows. And we talked about how many programs are now test optional or are more generously waiving uh, the need for a standardized test. I, I wonder if, uh, you know, some other schools, in addition to NCIAD, are doing this without making any sort of announcement or, or um, you know, it's, it's just a little more quietly being done. Maria, do you think that's true? I think it would sort of have to be. I think we, you know, again, if if the the proof is in the pudding, right? If they start, if they have been slowly but surely letting in more and more candidates with perhaps less than stellar test scores, and those candidates are kicking lots of butt when they get to campus, then you know that also speaks to the limitations of the test. And so, why should I take the test as seriously if 
it may be an indicator, but clearly it's not the only indicator of someone's academic potential. I did want to very quickly point out one quick thing about the 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 score discrepancies between, say, Africa versus China and India, because sometimes people get like upset about it and they're like, I'm from India and it's, you know, it's BS that I get discriminated against and people from Africa get this sort of affirmative action treatment. I'm pretty sure that you know, GMAC themselves, I don't want to put like words in their mouth, but I remember once watching a presentation where someone somewhere had done research into, they asked people, how much time did you spend studying for this test? Yes. And people in countries like India and Africa, which have very heavy testing, you know, that is, a, those are test taking cultures, right? Your entire life is determined by one or two exams that you take, you know, as a teenager, and so those are very test heavy, uh, you know, and, and I sometimes people will reach out to me and they're like, I quit my job last year to study for the GMAT. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, what are you <laughs> thinking? <laughs> right. It's like, oh, that's a terrible idea. Oh, well, in India, we do it all the time, like for the civil service exam. And I'm like, well, it's not like that in other places. But I think the average was like the average person in, in India or China studied something like 200 hours. I, I These numbers are not accurate, but it was something like hundreds of hours. And the average person in Africa studied like five hours, right? So it's also a culture. It's not just like, oh, well, these people are less qualified than I am, and yet they're getting in. It's also like, hold up. Like maybe if you had only studied for five hours too, maybe you wouldn't have gotten that 760. Just because it's just not, you know, there's, of course, thanks to the internet, et cetera, more and it's getting, word is getting out. Like, hey, you should probably study for like several weeks or months. But, you know, for a while people didn't, they were just like, well, it's a test. And so I'll, I'll study a little bit and I'll just take it and see what happens. And so it's just, anyway, I just wanted to point to point that out. I, I don't remember the exact figures, but it was a, a yeah, pretty dramatic I, delta. I think we recall that research as well, yeah. I mean, look, in South Africa, the mean GMAT score of a test taker is 505. And that tends to be on the high side for most African nations. And so the other question here is when, when an admissions official looks at a GMAT score, do they actually look at what the overall score is in a given country so that they actually are seeing, okay, well, this person has performed well beyond uh, the typical candidate from their country. Is that even taken into account? It is to a certain extent, you know, not necessarily sort of such a granular, granular level of, you know, country by country and what is the average and so on. But certainly admissions staff are very aware of the regional differences that you mention. Because, yeah, um, you know, you're Egypt, 470 is the average score. Ethiopia, 447. Cameroon, 427. Botswana, 409. These are the average scores in these countries. Mm. Clearly, if you want to recruit and basically place a bet on, you know, over the next quarter century, what's going to be the most important economies emerging in the, in the world, you're going to place big bets on Africa and you're not going to be able to get massive big GMAT scores. Kenya, six, uh, 463 is the average. Uh, I mean, some of these countries, it's just like, all in the 400s. It's remarkable. So if you score a 600 from a country where the average is 450, man, you're really doing well. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Right? And, Zimbabwe. And clearly Africa, yeah. 
I was just going to say, you know, the country of China clearly thinks that Africa is going to be the next hotbed of growth. I mean, they have they're investing so much money into that into that region that I know in the U.S. we may not be quite as it may not be quite on our radar, but other countries are taking note. Other superpowers are taking note. And so, yeah, I mean, if you want if you want talent, they need to start grooming that talent now to be ready for the opportunities later. Yeah. And this goes back to how uh, standardized test scores kind of are. Uh, discourage diversity because we know based on the stats that if you're an underrepresented minority and you grew up without the benefit of college educated parents speaking about professional things and in uh, public policy in the economy around the dinner table, you're not going to score as well as someone who had those advantages. And so if you want to increase the diversity by recruiting more underrepresented minorities, you're going to have to look at other aspects of their application to more fully evaluate them than a standardized test score, because it's just not going to work. And this, we've said this before about uh, the test is in English and students who are, are taking this test who didn't grow up with English are also at a natural disadvantage. So the, you have all of these other factors that have long plagued standardized testing in general and are increasingly being acknowledged by university admission officials, whether at the graduate level or the undergraduate level, because they contradict uh, goals uh, for diversity. And I I think that on some level, this move by NCAD needs to be looked at in the context of uh, these newer trends where schools want and have put great emphasis on diversity and inclusion and equity and uh, gender balance and greater representation uh, from countries around the world that are more diverse than the typical, uh, you know, industrialized economies. And if that's going to happen, there's going to have to be more flexibility in interpreting a standardized test score. John, I'm glad that you raised your children talking about public policy and the economy at the dinner table. I'm afraid that <laughs> conversation at my dinner table is more about, you know, please don't throw food at each other and stop <laughs> arguing. So maybe my kids are going to be at a disadvantage when it comes to taking the gene. But um, <laughs> just, to, just to be devil's advocate and argue in favor of the GMAT for, for sure. in terms of diversity. I mean, it is, it, it's very difficult, right, for schools evaluating candidates from all, all across the world. And so it's actually in some ways a benefit for candidates coming from different backgrounds to have a data point that enables them to be compared to the Wall Street investment banker and the McKinsey London management consultant, right? Because although they may not do, they may not get a 730 like those other candidates, it enables them to to demonstrate academic ability and, you know, potential for the program in a way that may not be quite so obvious from their background, which may largely because um, be because um, the school just is not familiar with where they went for their undergrad. And, you know, they don't know the company that the candidate is working from, uh, working at. And so, you know, that unfamiliarity with their background can also be a barrier. And so there's also a benefit in taking the GMAT or the GRE in that, you know, it's uh, it, it's a common data point across the pool. And it means that, you know, you can it, it gives you credibility and, and it reassures the school of your ability, which is especially valuable for candidates where 
you know, they're concerned the school may not know that my undergraduate program was incredibly demanding and I did brilliantly. And they may not know, you know, my company, they wouldn't have heard of it and they don't know, you know, how difficult it was to get this job and how well I'm doing. Right. So, so there is a benefit in, in having that common data point. True. I'm going to go back to what Maria said last week. Her strategic advice to uh, the Graduate Management Admission Council, promote the executive assessment. Uh, It's a shorter test. It's an easier test. People could still get confidence. That is, the admissions officials can still get confidence in the person's ability to do the meager quant in in a core curriculum in an MBA program. And everyone will be happy because they don't have to study for three months to get a 700 plus score. <laughs> oh well. Don't you I still Maria, I still think that's the best advice ever for them. I know. They should call me. <laughs> <laughs> totally true. Totally true. The other thing that's happened this week, and this is uh something that we've talked about in the past as well, is Harvard. Uh, announced its round two decisions, meaning that the school released thousands of applicants in round two, released as their euphemism for rejected, and invited several hundred, hundreds of people to interview. And so this week, there are a lot of very disappointed people out there who were turned down by Harvard Business School. And I know in the past, and in, in fact, you could look this up, because I thought our, our, we had great advice for you if you were feeling down and disappointed after being rejected by Harvard Business School. You are not a loser. You are in very good company. The types of people who get rejected are really superb. And in many cases, is very little uh, that separates them from the people who uh, were chosen to be interviewed. But I wonder if uh, if you two might uh, console <laughs> many of the people who uh, were turned down this week. Maria, what do you say to them? I mean, I think the, and this is going to sound flippant, but I don't really mean it that way. It's Harvard. It's not Hogwarts. I say that <laughs> frequently. Like, it's not like, oh my gosh, it's I either get into Harvard Business School or my life is over and I'm going to be a troll that lives under a bridge. Like, no, it's not like there aren't like these sort of like binary outcomes in life. Um, so not only is it like, look, it might not. Like, I, I think we've we've spoken in the past about where people reach out and they're like, what went wrong? And it's like sometimes, sometimes, yeah, sometimes something went really wrong. Sometimes if you write a terrible essay or if you're completely unqualified, sure. But most of the time, it's not that anything went wrong. It's just that there was somebody else who maybe like edged you out on you know, ways that you will never know. And you could have done nothing about it. And it's not a reflection on you, but it's also not a reflection on your future potential and where you're going to go in life. I I, I don't say this to be sort of, you know, consoling in an artificial way. There are so many amazing MBA programs out there. As long as you go to a school that has a decent core curriculum, you're going to get, you know, 80% of the education that is important from business school anyway. Uh, and what you end up doing with that education is up to you. I mean, there are people, you know, if you look at the Fortune 500 CEOs, yeah, some of them have MBAs from fancy schools, but a lot of them don't. Uh, and so it's not like, oh, you have to get this MBA and it has to be from Harvard. Otherwise, oh, so sad, sad trombone noise, <laughs> womp womp. So I just, I think, and I also think, by the way, like there are people, I know there are people who graduate from Harvard Business School who don't necessarily achieve career success, who 
you know, struggle professionally who may not, you know, they might have been the admissions mistakes a little. I know they like to say that they don't make admissions mistakes, but I think sometimes they do. And uh, so it's also not like, oh, well, if I get in, that's it. Like my life is rainbow and sun, rainbows and sunshines for the rest of my life. So, I mean, you tried, God bless you. Like you wouldn't have, you wouldn't have gotten in if you wouldn't have tried, but please don't, don't hype yourself into thinking that like, oh, it's over. And now, you know, I don't know. I should, I should just cry for the rest of my life. (laughs) Well, there was one comment on Reddit from someone who was rejected. who said he had to just go into a business meeting and he was doing everything he could to hold himself together. Oh, it is tough. Uh, It's tough. Yeah, I know. It's For some people, it's like the first time they've ever been rejected from anything yeah. they really wanted, ah, right? So. That's a good point. That's a good point, Caroline, especially the people who went to like Yale undergrad, yeah. Goldman yeah. Sachs or McKinsey, like exactly. they've gotten everything they've ever applied for. And this might be yeah. right. That's a great point. It might be the first time yeah. someone's told them no. It's tough. <laughs> so let me remind all of you out there who were disappointed this week that there are plenty of other great schools and fantastic MBA programs uh, that will very much uh, invite you in and uh, welcome you and and will help you achieve your dreams. Uh, you don't have to go to a Harvard or a Stanford or an NCR or Lenin Business School uh, to get a great MBA education, to have a great career and a meaningful and influential one. So I think that's it's always important to keep that in the perspective. Meantime, I hope you enjoyed our podcast this week. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you, Maria. And good sleuthing, Caroline, on that uh, big breakthrough story on NCIAT accepting and welcoming lower GMAT scores. This is John Byrne with Parts of Watch. You've been listening to Business Casual. Don't you know